So I'd ask for you to uh, either turn in your Bibles or get out your sheets that you've printed out for Romans chapter 4. If you will notice on the website, you should have a link up there for discussion questions for today. And I encourage you, as time allows, whether you're listening with the group, maybe you're reflecting upon yourself, to go through those things. There's much more that could be said about the concepts that we're looking at uh, in Romans and the importance of justification by faith for the Christian life uh, and for our own mental well-being, uh, understanding what has been taken care of in eternity because that eclipses everything that happens on this earth. Um, what I'm going to, to ask you to do, uh, we are going to be covering a great deal of Scripture today in this chapter. We will finish this chapter today. And so what I'm going to ask you to do is bear with me in going back to chapter 3, verse 19, and we will start there and we will work our way forward. And I want to read from 319 to 425 because this is all a unit that we are going to tackle together. And so, says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed, for the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Well, by what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since indeed God, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, is one. Do we then nullify the law through faith? Well, may it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. 
How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there also is no violation. For this reason, it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, Father of many nations, have I made you, in the presence of him whom he believed, even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist, in hope against hope he believed, so that he might become a father of many nations. According to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised he was able also to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. I'm sure you think, wow, that's a whole lot of stuff. Yes, it is. But let's clarify the fact that it's a whole lot of stuff that God has done for us in Christ Jesus. When we talk about this argument of justification, and why is it important to recognize that works are an enemy to this situation? We cannot hound this enough. Because there is something in our minds that creeps from our hearts that desires for it to be about us. And the problem, I think, that stems out of all of chapter 4 is what we see in 327. The fact of, where can I boast? Where can I brag about things that have happened? So in chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, which we saw last week, we see that we are not justified by doing. We are justified by believing. We saw this constant word that is brought up in the New American Standard, credited, credited, Credited. And if you remember, the word is logizomai. And the idea means to reckon or to consider is true. Or, or this is the way that we should understand it because that is the reality. That's what it means to reckon something, to consider it so. And what we find in Romans chapter 4 is that everything that is reckoned, that is credited, is from God. God 
is the one who is crediting all of these things. Now, it's important to recognize that if we seek to bring in works in any way, we have stepped away from the category of grace, and that is a big problem. Another thing I want to uh, make sure we touch upon before we move forward is the blessedness that takes place in verses 7 and 8 is the whole concept of forgiveness, that forgiveness is complete, that we not only have a positive standing in God's sight, but we are completely cleared of all guilt and shame. And I'm going to say this, and this is going to seem not right to you, but I encourage you to think about it for a little while. Any shame that we experience from sins that we commit now, any guilt that we would have that derives from our sins now is meant to provoke us to confession, but it is never meant to put us into bondage. We have been set free from those things because the righteousness of Christ is ours. So now there's a a question that is asked in verse 9. Is this blessing, this forgiveness, then on the circumcised, on the Jews? In fact, something that might help you with your page or your Bible if you see it, is when you see the word circumcised, you might want to write Jew above it. And when you see uncircumcised, you might want to write Gentile above it. That might just help you a little bit to sort through this argument. It is slightly complex, but if we follow it and keep our wits about us, I don't think we're going to have a problem. Is this blessing then on the circumcised, the Jews, or on the Gentiles also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. Now, why would somebody pose a question like this? Here's the reason why. They're looking for a reason to boast. If it is for the Jews only, the Jews can brag. The Jews can lift up themselves. The Jews can say, ha ha, it's ours. But it's not. And the, and the sad, shameful thing that came out of this whole act or rite of circumcision is the fact that the Jews, in the development of their Judaism, began to believe that circumcision was a means of meriting the righteousness of God. It was something they did so that God would be okay with them. And so we may not understand that completely today. Hopefully I can connect some examples that will make that more real for you. Uh, But the idea is, is that where do I get to brag? Where do I get to say something? Can I look down on a Gentile because this forgiveness is not theirs because the right of circumcision was given to Jews? And Paul says, hold on a moment. We look at verse 10. How then was it credited? How then was it reckoned? While Abraham, while he was circumcised, and if you want to put above that after Genesis 17, or uncircumcised, which would be before Genesis 17. And here's what's interesting about circumcision. Circumcision was not while Abraham was, was, was uh, or sorry, faith, righteousness, was not while Abraham was circumcised. But he believed before he was ever circumcised. Circumcision is something that was given that was a seal and a sign of the already faith that Abraham had. He already believed some 14 years beforehand. This was given as a sign, and in what way, I don't know, but it's kind of creepy to think about. We're not for sure what went on back in their historical context and setting. But it was given as a sign or seal at that time as a setting apart from the rest of the world or the rest of the nations. Now, remember why this is important. Yahweh is the Elohim of Israel. Other nations 
have other Elohim. Those Elohim are creations. They are not the creator. Only Yahweh is the creator. And so what he is doing with Abraham is to further set him apart from how the nations operate here. So it took place while he was uncircumcised. He didn't receive this sign and this seal until later. Now one has to ask himself a question. If circumcision wasn't needed to obtain a righteous standing, what in the world was it good for? It's a confirmation of God's declaration of righteousness. So let's put that in today's context. Why do we get baptized? If we go forward in baptism, in order to gain acceptance with God, we have stepped out of the grace category. If we go forward for baptism, in order to add to the sacrifice of Christ, we have stepped out of the grace category. But if we go forward for baptism... Because we desire to be obedient as a result of our standing firmly rooted in the grace category by faith, now we have a declaration of something that has already taken place. We are publicly identifying ourselves because we have already believed in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Hopefully that brings some clarity to it. So notice Abraham received circumcision after he had already believed, verse 11, and he received the sign. It was the sign of the covenant that was made with him and his lineage of circumcision and a seal, God's declaration of his righteousness, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while uncircumcised, essentially while he was a Gentile. That kind of smacked Jews over the side of the head and made them think a little bit more clearly about the situation. And here's the reason, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised. What does that mean? It means that if you are a Gentile and you have believed in Christ, Abraham is your spiritual father. Why is that? Because he is set forward in scripture as the spiritual prototype for what it is to believe God. God says it in his word. You respond to that in believing that it's true. It's the conviction that what God has said is true. It's the very definition of faith. And so notice, if you're a Gentile and you have believed, Abraham is your spiritual father. So notice, it says here, He is the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be, here's our word again, credited to them, reckoned to them. How? By faith just as it was with Abraham. Verse 12, and he is also the father of the circumcision or the father of the Jews to those who not only are of the circumcision of the Jews, they're not only Jewish in their heritage and their makeup, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. So notice, it's not necessarily that Abraham is the example of faith, but he's the father of those who exercise faith. He is demonstrating to us what it is to believe in God. He is setting forward the idea. Now, what does this tell us when we come to this? Here's the top-notch idea. Divine ordinances will do nothing. They are in no way an additional accreditation of righteousness with God. They earn you zero. Taking communion doesn't matter. Getting baptized doesn't matter. Externals cannot justify you. If you, you've ever heard the phrase, well, I'm putting on my Sunday best. My question is why? Who are you trying to impress in this? 
Whose acceptance are we trying to earn by such things that we do? We have a huge bend to either get acceptance from people and think that we're qualified in the good person category. And what that does is those are works that we don't even realize takes us out of the category of grace. We become people pleasers by those types of things. If we're trying to please God through the ordinances that we take up, that becomes equally as dangerous. Now think about what you know about doing that yourself. Those around you that parade such things, different denominations, different belief systems. And here's a question for us to ponder, maybe for later, but I think it's important. If faith must be alone, then how many truly justified souls do you imagine that there really are? If everybody's always trying to add something, if everyone is always looking for a nook or cranny, to boast. Something as simple as responding to, uh, maybe you're saying, I got saved. Are we speaking about what you did or what happened to you? I think there's something to be said about where we look to try to bring works into that relationship with God. And it's concerning. This is why everybody needs to hear about justification by faith. So notice, no one is justified by externals. They cannot justify Look at verse 13. Here's your causal conjunction explaining on this, but now we're moving in, interestingly, a new direction. For the promise to Abraham, now you want to mark that because that's something new. It's part of justification by faith, but if justification by faith is your burger, this promise to Abraham is the cheese that's slapped on top of it, okay? So it says here, for the promise of Abraham or to his descendants that he would be, and here's what the promise is. If you want to draw a little arrow and mark it from the promise of Abraham over to this, that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. What's amazing is, is our justification does not stop at our acceptance with God, but it's also laced with the gift of worldwide dominion. Now, if you think back and you know your Old Testament, this is exactly what initially Adam and Eve were set up to do. They were God's beginnings of his earthly family, and they were called to have dominion, to be fruitful, to multiply, and to have dominion over all of the earth. It's important for us to recognize, and you can find traces of this in Ezekiel 28, Eden was not the entire earth. Eden was a segmented plot of land on the entire earth that was not only a garden, but was also on a mountain. And that was the sphere that Adam had influence over to be faithful in. And I have no doubt that if the train wreck, if the, if the train wreck, that's not what I meant to say. If the track record uh, through scripture is true and how God operates, if Adam was faithful with that plot in Eden, then it would be expanding and it would progenerate into an offspring that would expand dominion onto the rest of the earth. Well, notice what the promise is here to Abraham. If you believe, you're not only declared righteous by God, but you're also given the blessing on top of that that you will one day rule the world. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this, and a pandemic is a perfect environment for it, but many people are trying to rule the world. Everybody wants to rule the world. At least that's what tears for fears say, but I'm sure you would agree that that's true. Everybody at some point wants to have control of all things, whether they're maniacal, 
whether it's just the fact that they're extremely self-centered, whether it's the fact that they're just uncontrollably anal, regardless of what it is, everybody wants to try to control their circumstances and get a white-knuckled grip on all that is around them. This has never worked, and if anything, generates greater sin in us. So this promise to be heir of the world doesn't come through law-keeping, rule-keeping, self-imposed expectations. This was an opportunity that was lost in the fall, but is re-promised to those who believe. Notice, it comes through the righteousness of faith. Now, why is that important? Because when you and I pass out of this world and Christ returns and brings about his kingdom reign on earth, we will recognize that the reason why we are ruling and reigning alongside him has nothing to do with personal merit and boasting. And it all has to do with the fact that in his grace, he opened this opportunity as part of the blessing of justification by faith. So look at verse 14. For if those who are of the law are heirs... Faith is made void, and the promise, the promise of being an heir of the world, is nullified. Faith is ineffectual. It's empty. The promise is useless. It's useless to say that you will be an heir of the world if you can earn it. Why? Because you can't earn it. And the cosmic implications from that are, if you can't earn it, you cannot reign. It's impossible. Now look at verse 15 because of the dangers. For the law brings about wrath. If you ever needed just a short little verse that's going to sum it all up for you so you understand it, here's what it is. The law results in wrath. And any time that we try to keep the law, we invite the anger of God to deal with us. Why? Because we're trying to live by a standard that we upkeep, not by faith. But where there is no law... There also is no violation, and therefore there's no wrath. If you are living by faith, you can't offend God, period. It's impossible. Why? Because you're coming to him, his way, on his terms, not trying to create a righteousness for yourself. Verse 16, for this reason, it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace. It's by faith so that we stay in the grace category. So that the promise, the promise of heirship, will be guaranteed to all the descendants, all the spiritual believing descendants of Abraham, both Jews and Gentiles, not only to those who are of the law. And when Paul says that, not only those who are of the law, he's talking about the Jews who were given the law. So if you want to write Jews next to that, that might help, the Jews who believe, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. That's Gentiles who don't have the law. And notice this who is the father of us all. Now, let me explain to you the importance of this. And this is a little homework you can do for the week. Get out your concordance. And at some point, I want you to look up the word Abraham as he occurs in the Gospels and the word kingdom as it occurs in the Gospels. And if you find the verses where both Abraham and kingdom are listed together, in the gospel accounts, and it's Jesus speaking pretty much every time, then you will notice the idea of those who are of the faith of Abraham will have ruling and reigning positions with him in the coming kingdom. It's a fascinating study, and it helps a lot to clarify this idea of trying to squeeze Israel into being the new church and church being the new Israel. It does away with that altogether. Thank God. 
So now moving on here, we have a transition. The law cannot guarantee this for you. Verse 17, as it is written, now watch this, pay attention to the tense. A father of many nations have I made you. Now, it's important that you recognize why it says have there. Genesis 17.5 is where this comes from. And this is when Abraham's name is changed before he was Abram up until this point. But now he has changed to Abraham as the father of many nations. That's what it means. But notice it says, have I made you. Now, stop. At this point, it's just Abraham. At this point, it's just Sarah. At this point, Lot's kind of hanging out. There are no opportunities for offspring yet. There is no Ishmael yet. There is no Isaac yet. There is no marriage to Keturah and having six different sons who become nations and peoples of their own. None of that exists yet. And notice what we have here is the word have. A father of many nations, have I made you. That tells us that in God's mind, it's a done deal. It's already finished. It is a promise that he has already made. And remember, the covenant to Abraham is unconditional. It is a promise that God will see fulfilled regardless of what happens. It says here, as it is written, a father of many nations, have I made you in the presence of him whom he, that's Abraham, believed, even God, now watch this, who number one, gives life to the dead. You need to mark that. Number one, life to the dead. Why? Because he's talking about the concept of resurrection here. So we need to understand this. God, who number one, gives life to the dead, and number two, calls into being that which does not exist. Now, let me go ahead and explain this for you of what we're going to see. This concept of giving life to the dead is going to follow throughout the rest of this chapter. But what does it mean to call into being that which does not exist? You may think automatically to ex nihilo creation and the idea of there in the beginning there was nothing and God spoke and all of a sudden there was stuff. Um, that is true in concept, yes, that's true factually. In Genesis 1, that is not what this passage is talking about whatsoever. What it's talking about is the fact that there were no nations when this promise was made in Genesis 17, and yet... Being no nations at all, God is going to make nations out of what was once no nations. That's the idea here. So maybe we want to get creative and call it an out-of-nothing promise or an ex nihilo promise is what this idea is. Now watch how this works here. Verse 18, in hope, against hope, he believed. Now what does that mean? Though Abraham's physical body said no, his trust in God's word said yes. Abraham believed what God told him. In hope against hope, he believed. Why? So that he might become the father of many nations. So that Genesis 17.5 would be fulfilled according to that which had been spoken. Now watch this. So shall your descendants be. Now that's from Genesis 15. Five, and we understand streaming from that, that that's not just talking about the Jewish race and the bringing about of the Messiah. This is also talking about the idea of those who have believed, the spiritual believing descendants, us included, would stem from Abraham. In hope against hope, Abraham believed this. He believed that God could do exactly what he said. Now look at verse 19. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body. He carefully considered the fact 
that he was pruny and almost dead. Let's say it that way. He was done for. He wasn't having kids anytime soon. He was at great-great-grandfather age. And so the whole idea of some sort of posterity coming through him, we might sit there and look at that and go, God, that sounds real nice, but I don't know. This wasn't how Abraham addressed this. If God made the promise, remember, God took him out, showed him the stars, said, count them if you can. This is what your descendants are going to be like. And what do you have streaming out of that? Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him, it was credited to him as righteousness. So without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own physical body. And notice what it says, now as good as dead. Now as good as separated from the possibility of bringing forth kids. Now watch this. Since he was about 100 years old, now not only that, but you have, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Now here's what's interesting about Paul bringing this up. The fact that Sarah couldn't have children was brought up in Genesis chapter 11, verse 30. That's before Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3, when we see the basic structure of the covenant with Abraham. It was already mentioned in the scriptures, she was barren without child. She couldn't have any children. So you have a double deadness that Abraham is having to mentally deal with on one side and the fact that God had made him a promise on the other. Which one would he choose? Well, notice here, Abraham still believed regardless of the physical obstacles that were before him. Why is that? Because God can do what God says. Verse 20, yet with respect to the promise of God, and remember, what is that promise we saw from verses 13 through 16? It's the promise of being an heir of the world. With respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but he grew strong in faith. And as he grew strong in faith, notice what it resulted in, giving glory to God. So this double deadness, him being old in years and Sarah never being able to conceive a child, didn't stifle Abraham's faith. He believed that he believed at that point that God was able to bring about resurrection, that he could bring his word to completion. So notice here, verse 21, and being fully assured, fully convinced that what God had promised regarding being an heir of the world, he was also able to perform. In fact, what I did was just putting big old letters next to that. God is able. There is nothing that God has promised in his word that he is not able to do. He will do it in his time. He will do it in his way. But he is able. The ability rests with him. Now, Paul sums this up. Verse 22, therefore, it, and that it there is faith, it was also logizomai, credited, reckoned to him as righteousness. There's your Genesis 15, 6 verse. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited, that it was reckoned to him, that faith was reckoned to him. Now, notice what that's saying. It's not just the fact that we have the Old Testament in the account of Abraham's life that it was written. It wasn't just written down to chronicle history. Verse 24, but for our sake also, for believers to whom it, faith, will be logizomai, credited, reckoned, 
as those who believe in him, now watch this, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. What's the concept put forward? It's the same as what Abraham had to deal with. The idea that even though he couldn't have kids and the promise was given that he would have many offspring, the fact was is that he believed that God would fulfill his word if he had to go to the links of resurrection to do so. What do we believe in now? We believe in Jesus Christ our Lord. We believe in God's word. And the fact that he has raised Jesus Christ our Lord from the death, from the dead. Our faith is the same as Abraham's. It's not any different. But one thing we have to recognize with the progressive revelation of Scripture is that the object of our faith has revealed greater information. In other words, what exactly is it that we believe? We believe in a God who's able to overcome death with resurrection. That's what we believe. We believe that on our behalf. We believe that his death for our sins has taken care of all issues between us and God. Now I have a verse that, verse 25, and I'm, I'm amazed at how many different interpretations people have taken of this, but I think it's actually quite plain if we just look at the, the structure. Let me read it and we'll break it down. Verse 25, He who was delivered over because of our transgressions, and was raised because of our justification. Now, I want you to notice, number one, that the word he is in italics. And I believe here that it should be taken out. It really jacks up the sentence structure here. So I'm going to ask you to maybe circle it and slash through it or something. You can still read it if you need to. But if you notice, the end of verse 24 gives us a comma. And let's read that together. But for our sake also to whom it was credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered over because of our transgression and was raised because of our justification. And notice the sentence structure here and how it goes. Who was delivered over because of our transgressions. Of course, we're talking about his substitutionary death. But I think what's important is this deliverance here is his betrayal, his crucifixion, and his burial. That's what we're talking about when he was delivered over. Why was he delivered over? Because of our transgressions. So here's what it is. We transgressed, he was delivered over. Now notice that still stays in the category of death on the cross. This is still death truth. This deals with the blood of Christ. So notice that being delivered over is actually the second part of this concept. Our transgressions are the first part. Our transgressions are what brought about his delivery to crucifixion. Now notice the second part. And he was raised because of our justification. Now notice, because of our justification. What does that mean? It means that our justification had to be complete in order for him to be able to raise from the dead. Why is that? Because Jesus Christ is our great high priest. Because his blood is the perfect offering that can actually do completely away with sins. That's the reason why. Everything that we've ever done that is offensive to God, our acts against him, is completely washed away by the blood. Remember, Jesus is our mercy seat. He is not simply our covering. He doesn't simply cover it up. The blood of bulls and goats never takes away sin. The perfect blood of Jesus Christ removes sin entirely. Resurrection is God's stamp of authentication and acceptance of Jesus' offering of himself 
and his blood. So, justification is now possible because of Jesus' death. Resurrection is not a justification truth, but it is the segue that moves us into sanctification truth. It's important for us to recognize this before we draw some application. Everything that we've seen in verses 319 through 425 deals with the blood. What was the power of the blood? And it's important for us to recognize that the blood wasn't for us. The blood was for God. And if you get the opportunity to read anything by Watchman Nee, if you could get a hold of the normal Christian life and read just chapter one of that book, you will actually find the blood was for God. He, he, he does a, a more marvelous job than I ever could in my Kentucky twang in order to add to this understanding. And because of that, he paves the way into the glorious truths of chapter five of what it is to have peace with God. Now let's apply the reason why justification by faith alone matters. Number one, it has to do with our growth. Growth springs forth from the roots. This is true whether it's a plant or a person. And it's the basis of our grounding that determines our production. Our leaves may be colorful, and others may admire their brightness. But such beauty is only possible because of the root, firmly planted in rich soil. If we look at our leaves and begin to think that our resources are bound up in them, we lose sight of the root altogether. And this is when growth stagnates and stops. There is no nourishment in the leaves. They may be beautiful, but this is only because they are the result of what is flowing from the root. In the same way, you and I, by faith, are planted by God in grace To grow, we must constantly be cognizant of our source and much less mindful of the results. A second way of application is thinking about what it means in relation to Satan. The enemy will attack us subtly, wanting us to do an inventory of our lives and provide evidence as to why we are acceptable to God. And if we end up reflecting upon our baptism or our volunteerism, or the regularity of our prayer time, or whether or not we've been in God's word, he has succeeded in diverting our eyes away from the basic truth of justification by faith. Satan's goal is to cover up the unshakable foundation of grace in which we are firmly planted, and he does so with the quicksand of personal merit, and he cultivates doubt in our position before God. So if we have a firm grasp on justification by faith alone, This removes our thinking from the religious rat race of acceptance and it reestablishes us in the reality of grace. We don't ever move on from justification by faith alone. Probably one that I'm more concerned with and I think will strike a nerve with us is how does the importance of justification by faith alone resort or result in our relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ? I don't know about you, but there's often a temptation to compare myself with others in the body of Christ. My flesh is always looking for a way to prove to me that it has some sort of worth or that it's the answer to my needs. By comparing ourselves to the failures of others, we feed this lie 
and we step into unbelief and we begin to look down on our brothers and sisters. We forget that they are objects of God's grace and we forget that they are also co-heirs of the world with us. Instead, we exalt ourselves. We keep inventory of why we're better than them, why we're smarter than them, why we're more deserving than them, why we're more desirable to God than they are. And we find that our pity becomes more about fueling our pride than meeting their need. And this is where we get to boast before God about our worth over theirs. These thoughts and actions are a result of neglecting justification by faith alone. We must remember we are declared righteous, not made righteous. You and I are still very much sinners, and we still very much sin. Our position is as undeserved because our condition is completely helpless apart from the intervention of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have to always come back to justification by faith alone because it levels the competition field between brothers and sisters in Christ and it puts us all face down on the ground of grace. If you get nothing else from Romans three nineteen through 4, 25, it should be the fact that there is no boasting whatsoever and there's only honor, praise, and glory to give to God. Now, I want to help you understand why I put together a little summary statement to be put up on the screen. You can look at it with me. Romans three nineteen through 4.25 shows the divine settlement between God and Christ over sins. We are the passive party that receives blessing and benefit. However we may try, we are not allowed to have any role in justification. We can only receive. That's what we are, recipients. Not doers, not movers, not shakers, not difference makers. We're none of those things. We are none of those things in controlling our Christian growth. We are none of those things in combat with the enemy and the dark forces that come against us. We are none of those things, especially in mind of our brothers and sisters. In fact, we are commanded, consider one another better than yourselves. How can you do that? Because of grace. Because the playing field before God is level. Because it's a field of grace. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that by externals we cannot earn justification. By keeping the law, we cannot earn the right to be heirs of the world. But instead, we see a model in Abraham of what it is to hold your word in the highest regard beyond anything else we would ever think in the wickedness of our heart, regardless of whatever good and valuable advice the world would deem to speak into our ear. Essentially, Jesus, all we need is you. We thank you that you are our substitute. We thank you that you are our mercy seat, that you are our high priest, that you are our sacrifice, that you have paid it all, that you offer it all, and that you ask nothing in return. There is no obedience that you demand, and therefore we have no grounds of boasting. All we have is a grounds to give glory to God. 
So God, we thank you for being so sweet. Thank you for loving us. We pray it in the name of our great Savior. Amen.